Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces. Hello, welcome to one of the Edinburgh Fringe specials of Book Shambles. Uh, just a quick note, hopefully the sound should be absolutely fine, but unfortunately what happened was we did have a studio booked, but then found out that uh, it had an extremely aggressive studio manager stroke owner, and so we found ourselves instead in a hotel recording these. So hopefully all is fine. I hope you enjoyed them. Bye-bye. I love, yeah, those books that... A thing in the woods, because there'd been a satanic pact years ago on the night that destroyed the whole village and the girl disappeared and Betty Davis went loopy. That's heavy for Disney. It's very heavy. Well, that was when they were trying to do that transition, wasn't it? Because they started to make slightly more grown-up films, like The Black Hole, which, by the way, is scientifically inaccurate. And uh, (laughs) that that film was... uh, I knew it! Yeah, it's odd now looking back. Anthony Perkins didn't know what he was doing. But they, they suddenly found out they couldn't make films for a slightly older audience, which is why they started Touchstone Pictures, which is who made Splash and stuff. So they thought, as long as it's not called Disney... Yeah. Oh dear, you've just opened a lot of my mind. Let's shut it again and welcome our guest, who you've already heard from, Robert Ware. Hello, thank you for having me. So you've been up in Edinburgh for uh, well, the whole run, but you're not, you're not actually doing... I'm not actually doing bugger all. No, my wife, Abigail Burdess, is doing uh, Abigail's party comedy cabaret, but she, um, I mean, it does say not the Mike Lee play on the, on the fly. Oh, no! But you'd have thought, I mean, you'd have thought you'd check, but some people just haven't checked. Oh, my and God! They, and they get a treat. Because they're expecting a slightly overrated play, uh, but it's the whoa! <laughs> wow, hold on now! Already. Hold on now! Uh, but uh, yeah, some people were uh, expecting something else, and, but it's been it's been fine. I've been doing very little. So, is it actually based around uh, having like a party, like a nineteen seventies suburban party? No, it's based around her having a doing some stand up and pretending it's a sort of party with her house band Dave. I'm just dicking about, basically, but uh, it's characters and comedy. But by the time this goes out, it'll be history. History. So there's no point in me plugging it. I have written a book. So your, your book, how <laughs> it's much... It's all coming much, together. Yeah. How autobiographical is it and how much... Because it's about the making of... Is no, it about the, it's, it's, called, about it's called How Not To Be A Boy. It is a child and teenage memoir. It's themed around masculinity and how the rules for being a boy and a man and how I wasn't very good at it as I was a boy and the stuff that we get told and how to grow up. And so it's all about that really it's a, a way to avoid writing a hopelessly autobiographical novel I just get the memoir out of the way now and then next time I'll actually have to make something up so what was the moment of if you can kind of pinpoint various sections where you think right trying to be a boy trying to fit in with I mean of course for you know a lot of people at this festival at the moment there are a lot of people who would have said that they spent their you know the first few years with that sense of being an outsider I mean I always say yeah. to my audience that the kind of audience I get very rarely will any of them ever pick first for games you know mine it's goths and librarians and it's people who the sense of relief when they left the school was it at school was I it? was I was consistently the second to last boy to be picked for any 
team, the first to last boy being Mark Sharp, and he had cerebral palsy. So that's how, I'm not joking about cerebral palsy, but he did have that condition, and but I was the first person without that condition to not get picked. Anyway, um, yeah, it just seemed to me that uh, you were supposed to be good at maths and football and science and climbing trees and swimming, and you'd rather be running around than reading a book and all this stuff, and I couldn't do any of it. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I understood these these rules to that, that I could follow, you know, I, I called them in the book the paramount uh, objective of despising girls and the sovereign importance of early homophobia. I could sort of get my head around those, because if there was one thing worse than being a girl, it was being a gay, uh, and only gays played with girls. You know, that all made a sort of sense. I hope that's improving a little bit since the late 70s, early 80s, but who knows, it's difficult to measure. But, there was a, but the, the main thing, and the, the, the slightly political with a small p, serious aspect of the book is the stuff about emotional repression and about how what we're saying to a boy when we tell him to man up or act mm. like a man. And it usually means not just stop expressing these unwanted feelings, it means eventually that starts to sound uncannily like stop feeling those feelings. And yeah. so, you know, by the time you're a man, you're, you're the person who's incapable of answering the question, what's the matter? What's the matter? Nothing. Why does everything always have to be about something? Mm. And I still do this to my wife. You know, I, you know, she asked me that question, and I experience it as a challenge to my pride, some kind of attack, instead of you know a perfectly nice question uh, that somebody who likes you might want to ask. So, did you retreat in you know that that bit where that moment of finding the culture that you know when you are when everyone else is swimming and running around the woods and mm. you're reading books what did you find who were the authors that you found solace in or it was more um before i started reading really and i was reading a bit more than most of the boys that i knew but you know and roald dahl and and then douglas adams and you know there's a sort of path through to eventually you get the bad news from george orwell and then you don't look back but um but it wasn't so much reading as uh, I was fairly solitary. I have these two older brothers, but they're much older, five or six years older. So I was kind of on my own. And I had uh, an imaginary gang of friends called the Guy Buys, and there were 12 of them. And I was the twelve, well, like the apostles, basically. And I was the, I was the captain of the Guy Buys, of course. And we that basically. That would be harsh if you invented them and you were like. I was like <laughs> the second, the lieutenant. That would be a sign of quite low self-esteem. I can't even be in charge of my own messiah complex. Uh, no, but we used to range around fighting crime essentially. But it was it was it was television more than anything. It was Chips and you know Robin Hood and Doctor Who and the A Team and just Space Nineteen Ninety Nine and you know all of these uh, fictional. Heroes, not a father among them. Uh, in, in the book, I do a list of about twenty of these action heroes that I admired, and none of them were dads, and uh, mm. including Kirk, who turns out was a dad, but he wasn't a dad at the time. Anyway, um, yes. So mainly, yeah, running around fighting crime with my invisible friends. <laughs> do you find there's a the strange thing that the older you get, the easier it is to focus on and understand? the childhood events that led to you becoming the human that you are. I found a certain instance that the older I got, the more I went, oh, yeah, that, that leads to that, and that leads yeah. to that, and that's because of, the, you know, that. 
I think having children, you know, I've got two girls, definitely brings a lot of stuff back. And, you, and in a way, it's kind of reassuring and surprising that so little, in some ways, so little has changed. That, you know, I thought when I was a kid, I thought by the time I'm a grown up, oh, these, uh, I don't know, telephone boxes won't be red anymore. I mean, we don't use telephone boxes anymore, but they're still red. And, you know, lots of things are, are still the same. It's, you know, the playground is the playground and the TV is the TV. Mm. But, um, yeah, you, you start to, as you get older, you. Yeah, it puts it puts it in a certain sort of context. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I t- at one point I talk about me and David in the pub trying to come up with ideas for sketches, David Mitchell, and uh, that we were talking about the professionals once, the TV show, the professionals, and I say at the end of it, there's a there's a little story, and then at the end I say talking about childhood is not typical for us because we're too young to find children interesting. And I think when you're in your sort of mid twenties, children is for just what children <laughs> but by the time you know I'm 44 now and I'm finding this stuff uh, resonates more do you find that are there particular books that you're drawn to to uh, give to your daughters you know when you go around the bookshop there's an interesting clash yeah. isn't there between what you think no 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 honestly this no you know there's a do you- I have definitely pushed uh, Willy Wonka on them in a way that you know they wouldn't have discovered him uh, necessarily and i, I I made sure they saw the Gene Wilder version of the film before they saw the, the new one as well. Um, I, I've got friends who, you know, I'm not on Facebook, but my wife uh, reports that they, you know, they are totally getting their children into all the stuff that they were into. Mm. And you, and there's a, there's a kind of mixed. There was you know, a great one doesn't criticise other parents, but go on. No, no, there was a really great Onion headline that was. Like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, cool parents. Get the get their daughter into music that will alienate her from her peers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Is, is now an expert on seventies subculture. Of, yeah. yeah, whatever it is. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, there must be that tension. Like my sister, it's really beautiful. What my sister is doing for my niece, which is everything she's buying is basically this girl loved science, and they're all yeah. like little girls, books for little girls about like she was better than all the boys at science <laughs> what was that book it's a brilliant book the one that, there's about three that have come out recently which are all about iconic scientists yeah, female scientists well. very often marginalised in history I know because my sister sent it to photos of it three times to me and said please buy this for your niece and then I keep being like I forgot what to get her so I got her this you know which is no good because yeah my son will read it a lot. my favourite one recently was he's reading these books called uh, My Sister the Vampire and one of his friends went oh but those are girls books he meant there's no such thing as girls books and boys books Hooray. but uh, the um, yeah you, I mean you, you just walk into a toy shop and you, you know they're on different floors never mind you know different you know you just see it you're accosted by this this you know uh, pink everywhere and um, you know we, we didn't ban them from playing with dolls or prams or whatever but, but we always made sure that there was other stuff there as well and they do karate and football and, but also ballet and you know and they you know it's just a question of boys or girls giving them the full choice and letting them follow their their own um, interests. They call the, the family code word is the trick. I think it came out of um, Abby, my wife, who is not one to necessarily soften her vocabulary when she's talking to the children. Mentioned the patriarchy, and that came back as the patriarchy, and, <laughs> and now it's the trick. And um, there was a time I mentioned in the book. There was a time when Ezie, who was she was about five or six at the time and she there was a non-uniform day and she said mommy if I go as Spider-Man and not as a princess do you think people will laugh at me and Abby said they might laugh and what will you say if they do 
Lacey said, shall I tell them they're laughing because of the trick that makes boys sad and girls get rubbish jobs? <laughs> and I said, yes, I think that would be a very good answer. So, so the, she, and, she, and, she and Dory now rate their friends according to who most believes in the trick. And like, yeah, I like Sophia, but she's she's a bit tricky. And <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Like your book is really timely, isn't it? Because like there's so like I feel like so the campaign for living uh, campaign against living miserably not for that's the, that's been much worse. But the campaign against living miserably is something that like. Is, is just like building up steam I feel like it's it's like timely and people are talking about like there's a guy called Jack Rook who's written a really brilliant show in the festival at the moment he's like a 23 year old guy and he talks about uh, masculinity and homophobia and stuff like that it's, it's like similar things about how it's expected of you to live and, and not to being stuff and like I feel like it's so intrinsically linked with feminism and yeah. it's all about the patriarchy being toxic and masculinity being this toxic weight for people. But I also find it really interesting because like if you were to look on paper at some of the things that men's rights people say, they're always talking about, you know, there are these things like male suicide, there are these things that weigh down on men. And so it's almost like you're like, oh, yeah, we're all fighting the same battle. Oh, no, you Except, guys have gone crazy. Yeah, no, exactly. They identify all the right problems. And so, you know, two out of three men, uh, two out of three suicides are male. 95% of the prison population is male. The way that our returning frontline troops are treated as a national disgrace. This is all regrettably true. And then they go, and you know who's to blame? It's feminists. You nearly had it. You nearly had it. I, I had a thing with my. I did a video that attracted me a lot of Nazi attention. Um, <laughs> yeah, so thrilled. Um, but in it, I basically mentioned over about a minute how difficult it is to live up to standards of masculinity in our society and mm. how like damaging that is and what that translated into in the Nazi response and critique was <laughs> you are a racist who hates white men so well I that mean, makes sense yeah, yeah it course. makes perfect sense and it's a delight to receive that commentary <laughs> I mean when I think about you know when people talk about toxic masculinity it's a phrase that I avoid in the book because it implies that there's a good kind of masculinity sure. I'm, not, I'm not having a go at men I'm having a go at the way we're kind of expected to perform it yeah. and when I think of the of men in my life, you know, friends and family that I admire and the things I admire about them, you know, supportive partners, patient, creative dads, uh, people found in general acts of kindness without particularly expecting to be rewarded and kind people, gentle people, the, you know, nothing that has nothing to do with the traditional notions of masculinity. Even if you look at a poem like um, If by Roger Kipling, you know, where are these supposedly exclusively male virtues, stoicism and grace under pressure and modesty but I mean, that's great, but I, I've watched women display these virtues my whole life and you know, Kipling would probably disagree but then so would a lot of people in 1909 when he wrote it and it's, it's just and physical courage, I mean, you know, I've seen my wife give birth twice <laughs> you, think you're, you think you're a brave son, okay, try and push a snooker ball out of your jizz sprinkler and then we'll see um, so it, yeah, I, I just don't know what to do with what what that word masculinity and indeed femininity what they add to the language that without bringing in a, a steam tank a load of gender manure from the last century. Who inspired you? I mean, the, you must have even before this book. There must be certain authors, certain writers, certain commentators where you think you have those little Damascene moments where you go, ah, oh, 
right, this is now managing to, this is rewiring me slightly to understand yeah. these perspectives. Was there anyone in particular that you thought... It's it, my wife, really. It's her fault. Uh, we've been together 13 years, and I think she's she's just been a huge influence. And also, you know, I didn't want to be one of those guys who doesn't get it about sexism until he had daughters, but I might be one of those guys who... I might be one of those guys. But it, it really focuses your mind. Suddenly you're seeing everything through, you know, I, I say in the book that I I went around, because my dad wasn't a brilliant, uh, well, he wasn't around, uh, mum divorced him when I was five, um, and he wasn't a brilliant role model in terms of how to be a dad. So when I became one, uh, I thought, I'm going to be fine because I'm not sexist, I don't vote conservative, I don't drink too much, uh, I'm never going to lose my temper, all of this stuff. I'm not going to go have a fit and take literally any job coming because I'm now I'm the breadwinner. That can't happen to me. That won't happen. And that's exactly what happened. And you, you know, I just became this arsehole for for two or three years, and I did loads of really shit work. And uh, and I, you know, I just had this. I've got to make hay. I won't be famous forever. I've got to. I've got a family to support. And at the same time, I'm trying to spend as as smallest amount of time with my family as I possibly could because I was shit scared that I was going to turn into my dad and um, so that all needed a bit of noticing and a bit of work uh, that came out of what were we talking about? That's a bit fair <laughs> I do know more so among male friends of mine than female when they've had kids there is that weird thing of like I'm just going to work I'll get all the work like yeah. it's so like strange to me and that's when you basically started doing book shambles the most lucrative thing you've ever yeah, done yeah yeah no that was uh, yeah <laughs> do you know what it was around that time that I started working with you and I have not looked back from our Saturday night primetime game show it's one thing it's I am broadcasting from the book shambles mansion <laughs> Do you um just on, on other kind of reading habits as well? Mm. Who do you when you when you're writing a book? Do you find that you need to read something which has nothing linked to it? If, if you're going to read something, you think I better not read any books that are linked to this because what if I suddenly go, oh my god, someone's written this before, I, or that it will influence your opinion too much? Because it was a memoir, I don't read. I don't go anywhere near Clive James for a while because uh, you know I adore him. I adore those those books um, but it's a very different style anyway if I dare to compare my style but but you know he is of a different generation he's slightly more formal mm-hmm. um, and so I didn't I didn't do that because it's just demoralising because you know you get to the end of a Clive James sentence and you want to stand up and applaud and it's just oh fuck um, I f- what I found with him though when I read uh, his childhood stuff was the writing was so beautiful but it, it, the word is the formality of it like I remember there was literally three sentences in the last paragraph where I felt like he finally went okay look, this is my deep deep feelings here. yeah he's not giving anything such a tiny glimpse he's... and I felt so like frustrated at the end of it because I was like sure this was really funny and it was definitely really elucidating and really well written but like the heart of it was literally opening and shutting a door for three sentences at the end it was like huh yeah, he's not giving much away at all. Uh, whereas I, <laughs> I said at one point I'd say I've been as candid as my ego will allow, and it turns out my ego will allow a fair bit. <laughs> um, do so, you read memoirs? Do you uh, before this? Would you? Well, I mean, do you enjoy the the biographies of, of uh, creative people or anything like that? Um, I wouldn't say it's the main thing. I'm surprised, and probably this is a bit luxist of me because you don't expect, because it's Rupert Everett, and you don't expect good-looking people to be able to write particularly well. But, but I, I really enjoyed one of 
his, but there haven't been that many. And Catelyn's, Catelyn Morant's uh, How to Be a Woman um, probably uh, was one of those books that made me go, mm, I think I could do something along these lines, but from a male perspective. And that was one of the, the sort of the, the, one of the inspirations for the book. The other thing being that I, I wrote a longish. Uh, article in the New Statesman of the same title it was called How Not To Be A Boy and that was a, sort of approaching this sort of gender stuff which I seem to have this preoccupation with but from uh, in a memoirish kind of way because it seemed like the right way to approach that subject because that's where it starts it all starts in childhood you know when you're, when you're told how to be a boy how to be a girl so um, but not, not that many memoirs actually I don't think the so. Rupert everyone's but I, I read the second one which is the one which starts off with him doing the comic relief uh, celebrity Apprentice yeah, and basically, did he win? no what happened no, he is he out. walks in and he goes oh my god and it's Alistair Campbell and Piers Morgan on the male Fuck team off. and yeah. he's looking over to the female team and it's Joe Brand and it's all these lovely oh, people lovely. that he yeah. loves and he's like going oh my god so he climbed out the window and ran away huh? so he's literally not in it Piers Morgan kept going what's Madonna's yeah. number yeah ring what's, Madonna what, ring Madonna what, come what, on ring Madonna just, no, why don't we? ring Madonna go on you, you know her you and know her. and he's like it's not really that kind of relationship in fact that's almost the perfect what your book is about isn't it of going here he looked across to these open wonderful <laughs> yeah. uh, you know beneficent and then he is stuck with these men who have to be men yeah they really do we have to win comic relief celebrity apprentice but it's a very he yeah you're right he's very Excuse a slight producer interruption here. We've just had to edit out something that at the time Robin referred to as This is really interesting slander. So anyway, back to the show. Because I think there is something about some children, and I think part of this is the public school system can help this, which is that people, if can, believe too much when their head teacher says, you have to remember you're the top 4% of the world. Oh, and that's a lot of what we see in government at the moment, and it, and the ego is such. But, uh, <laughs> but I think there is also, there's a, there's a kind of ab- abrasive masculinity that says... That's what you are. You ne- never, you know, this is... Hmm. There's a bit in the book where I talk about um, when I was being... I just got dumped uh, by my girlfriend and I started behaving. I was at my absolute minty fuckwittishness when I, as, a, as a sort of student uh, comedy performer. And I was really, really behaving badly and it was kind of, I was the best at this. Everyone else had to keep up with me, blah, blah, blah. And it was just this really competitive, unnecessarily... Uh, uh, aggressive approach to because I didn't I hadn't even noticed that acting was a team sport because I hate sport and I don't want to be part of a team and you know it was um, it was dreadful it was really really bad I was I was playing Dick Whittington in Dick Whittington <laughs> well the thing is you've got to be the best Dick Whittington you can be there's no time for yeah when you're placed under that Freudian pressure <laughs> from the very title from that no, point that's onwards supposed, that's supposed to be a female part did you? No, because I because I, I co-wrote wrote it, and then the director explained to me that this is traditionally played by a girl, and then I explained that that wouldn't be happening. And <laughs> with all the sort of obnoxious uh, courtesy of someone who knows he holds a wood cut, because I was I was sort of in charge of Footlights at that point, and oh my God, uh, so, so you were like bad luck ladies. I was the I was the badass. So yeah. now you've got to atone for that by writing this. I'm atoning for a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, the only thing, I've, I've been thinking a lot about my, how now I'm in my mid-30s, how I, do I treat and view men differently to how I did when I was younger? And I think when I was younger, I was adamant 
that I hated gender distinctions and I hated talking about men and women and I hated, I hated gender generalisations. And what saddens me is I do feel like the internet has brutalised me somewhat over 10 years and it has near exclusively been men. And so it's really hard not to think there is a problem with men online. No, but it's really hard because I haven't changed my opinions with regards to my male friends. I don't feel wholesale let down by them. I do feel kind of sad when it comes to certain childcare things. I do see patriarchy really taking hold of some people. But, you know, I'm not saying there's no issues. I'm not saying, like, there sometimes aren't misunderstandings. But I feel like people of my generation, like... I try really hard and like try to relate to one another as best they can. Yeah. But like, fuck's sake, men on the internet, like, I feel like there's something that's unexamined and wrong and I don't understand it. And I hate that I've become somebody that goes, I hate men online. And then obviously I know people are going to be like, not all men. And I'm going to be like, you're just making it worse. But um, yeah. it's really fascinating to me because my whole goal growing up was like, not to participate, yeah. you know, not to be conned by gender divisions and entrenched kind of separations in that way. But in the world that you're in predominantly in terms of, I don't mean the, where the exterior observers, mm. I think that is Oh, my actual true. life and yeah. work. Oh, but yeah, you are is. right. I think it's a very... I remember when Jermaine Greer once said this thing, she said, what women don't realise is all men hate them. <laughs> and... And I was like, oh, God, that's an awful thing. But I know what you mean. If you spend an entire day on social media and you see, like, yeah. when, you, when you were being attacked for what you said, when various different no, men... No, I wasn't attacked for what I said. I was attacked for what somebody else told people I was saying. Well, that even that, basically, a bunch of uh, right-wing men decided to prove that you were wrong about your fear of right-wing men by <laughs> repeatedly and grotesquely threatening you, yeah. which shows perhaps a, a, a level of witlessness. But also, we have no clue, because when I first started doing comedy, they were all, like, saying the same things for existing, so I'm like, oh, wait, this is nothing. Bring on. Anyway, sorry, uh, this is, like, a significant event for me. Of, like, yeah, of course, so I'm no, like, sorry, I missed I'll bring that. this up. <laughs> I'm... Uh, no, it was. Men in general, yeah, that's, I suppose I wanted to start because I was like, do you feel like you ever have kind of beliefs about men in general or do you feel like you try and steer away from it? Like, how do you I've feel? been, the way the book works is that I talk about uh, what happened to me and, uh, yeah. and, if, and if there's stuff that rings any bells there, then I, I leave it to the reader to infer that. But, it, but, the, but the, the general principle has been show not tell and I, I don't do that much conking the reader over the head with a big load of what I reckon. There is a bit of what I reckon, um, particularly closer to the end, but um, when I try to pull the sort of themes together, this is why I made this mistake, this is why I made this mistake, this sure. and, and, and a lot of it is to do with to do with gender and to do with, you know, as I was talking about earlier, emotional re- repression and just not developing those skills to be your own emotional detective and to work out why you're feeling what you're feeling. Am I angry because I'm angry or am I angry because I'm embarrassed? Or am I angry because I'm I feel ashamed, or because I'm scared, or because I'm in grief? I mean, there's quite a lot of death in the book. My mother died when I was 17, and uh, and, and my father in 2013. So it's and it's not a book I could have written while he was around. Sure. Um, so uh, so yeah, the um, and did you? Really oh yeah, mean- sorry to answer your question. Uh, no, I, I try I try not to generalize. But I, but I, but I reckon it's not just me. Ha! Did you read any uh, like psychotherapy stuff? Did you like engage with kind of any sort of 
self-help or like therapeutic uh, literature or like I was in counselling for a year after uh, no uh, about two years after my mum died I, was, I went to the university counselling service uh, and the trigger for that it, it wasn't that I'm so sad about my mum it was, it was the other you know it was this girl that I was going out with and this boy that I really really fancied and they started going out with each other um. and I sort of couldn't get out of bed for two weeks and I go this can't it can't be it can't be this it must be something else and I sort of went along to the initial session the sort of how bonkers are you these are not the preferred terms but the initial assessment and um, and you know and there's this guy and he says I think you've there's been a lot of separation in your life and I think we can help you have got a problem and I think we can help you and, and they did um, for, for a while and so it was kind of that it was that basis that got you able to write this book in adulthood yeah, I mean, well, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it would. I wouldn't say that it, it made everything better, but, it, but 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 you know, that's that level of um, goodness knows, worse things happen to people all the time. But obviously, I was very close to my mum, and losing her at that age, uh, just as it was becoming an adult, you know, a grown-up, um, more equal relationship, uh, was quite a big deal. And I worked out very quickly I wasn't going to get over it, or it wasn't going to sink in in some kind of sporting way. Um, but it's something that you learn to coexist with and you sort of make peace with it and uh, that's how I sort of see it I was just going to briefly mention just because of talking about grief different kind of thing and I can't remember if we've talked about this before um, which is just to mention my friend Rebecca Payton's play which you can buy as a text uh, and she wrote a book her uh, her dad died when she was six and her uh, uh, then her sister was killed in Mogadishu and uh, I won't go into too many of the details because you can read oh, about it in the play script it. and she is and, and I found uh, you can see she did a thing TEDx Brixton she's done and, and it's just a really amazing her just talking about grief but also her, her, her play and, and get the play text I think it's Samuel French it's just an incredible What's little journey book? of it's called Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister oh, yeah. and oh. it's a very interesting thing as well just because of things the title's already broken my heart yeah it's really uh, it's an an incredible piece of work and she told me an interesting thing again which we might have brought up before but she said when she toured it uh, men didn't come and see it she said because uh, she said sometimes couples would come but because it's a woman telling a story it's there for a woman's story Uh, if a man tells a story then it's everyone's story yeah Yeah. and I thought and it just seemed quite amazing because it's such an incredible story Um, I wanted to quickly mention another Canongate author who you're working with uh, for the Edinburgh Book Fest which is Richard Holloway Mm. Uh, now he is an amazing uh, individual former Bishop of Edinburgh yeah and he's very I mean have you spoken to him yet his book's Godless Morality Between the Monster and the Saint no I'm going to meet him at the end of the festival um, and for the first uh, book event for How Not To Be A Boy where I'll be you know, Q&A and uh, interview and um, bit, of, bit of signing, bit of tartily uh, handing out books. But um, I'm really looking forward to talking to him because he's a deeply impressive bloke. I mean, I must say I was slightly surprised when Karen Gates said this is who it's going to be because, you know, he is an 83-year-old former bishop and it's <laughs> not, not exactly the, well, the first person that springs to mind when I'm, you know, describing my first wank uh, on, in Chapter 2. So, I'd love it. Oh, of course, I. Of course, I found uh, Nissa Joy attractive too. <laughs> um. <laughs> Finally, forty minutes in, we get the Doctor Who. <laughs> the, uh, 
But it is. It was. Uh, he is a really great author. I'd highly recommend anyone to it because he's a former bishop. He basically kind of lost. He was like, "Why aren't we moving on? Why are there still these issues with things like you know same sex marriage in in the, in the church?" And that drove mm. him really out. For, Gavin got to the, almost the, the the peak, I suppose, of the church, like going, "Oh, I'm not really very comfortable with this anymore." And that's an incredible thing to do. Very brave. I and mean, he's devoted actually, his whole life to a thing, yeah. and he's going, "This just isn't working out for me anymore." I mean, I just don't believe these things that I'm supposed to believe so that's that then he's so such really a cool. he, he's, I can't remember which book it is where he talks about the fact that his, uh, um, he feels guilty about the time when his dog was put down and I don't think he was there at the time and it's like all of these things he's got this lovely humanity through him and some of the things he says in Between the Monster and the Saint which is the battle and again I think in some ways is connected to exactly what you're which is the battle between this kind of animal instinctual mind and then you know there right at the front of the frontal lobes where there is this thinking, feeling, understanding creature, so creatures mm. that can understand with feeling, and it's, an, it's, it's an, yeah, really interesting, uh, that would be a great discussion. Mm. Who do you read uh, at the moment? Uh, when I love Ian McEwan, and I'm a bit behind, uh, his last two I haven't uh, got around to, but they're waiting for me. At the moment I'm halfway through Matt Higgs' uh, um, uh, ways, ways to stop, how, to stop how, time. how to Stop Time. Not Thanks, way, guys. Not Ways to Stop Time. Well done for no, buzzing no, in. It's ways to it's stop. I'm, no, it's how to stop time because I'm thinking of ways to reasons ways, to yeah, reasons, yeah. ways to kill yourself. I think that's it. I think that's what he calls it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he does I, not I, call it not that. Not the message of the book. Um, uh, reasons to to be alive. Reasons, stay, yeah, reasons, reasons to stay, stay alive. alive reasons it. to stay alive. Ten um, Yes, which I'm enjoying the novel and and and, uh, uh, and it's it's well. sweet. Uh, he uh, Canongate is one of his publishers. I don't know if uh, they do all of it. I, I think that's like, the correct way of choosing publisher, publishers, isn't it? <laughs> so How do you choose your publisher? Well, I went in and it turned out they had loads of books I wanted for free. <laughs> and, uh, and that that is, is kind of actually. That when a, I went into that's Atlantic a real boom. and I went, oh look, they've got that uh, Christopher Hitchens that I haven't read yet. Oh, that interesting book about psychotherapy. I better go with them. <laughs> that will like save me up to twenty-seven pounds a year. <laughs> what else do you like to read for pleasure? Uh, blimey, I have become a deeply idle and chaotic reader, <laughs> and I'm not sure if I can think. What am I? What did I? Did you do English? I'm sorry, I did. Yeah, I mean, I saw as a teenager, I, you know, I had this feeling that uh, this feeling of guilt if I wasn't devouring the sure. canon, and uh, you know, there were some golden years where I sort of went through a lot. But if you ask me the plot of Jude the Obscure now, I can't. Uh, he's a he's a stonemason. He wants to be inside the building instead of tapping on the stone. That's the main thing. One funny. of the women is called Sue. I don't know what the other woman's called. Um. You know, I but, you know, I used to love Hardy. I, you know, and so anyway, I um, I rushed through all that, uh, and I should really go back. Um, uh, Updike, I'm really enjoying. I'm, I've only just getting around to the the rabbit books, uh, which are just phenomenally good. I've never uh, read those. I've been reading the essays and I've, I've, his books on art. He, I think, I can't remember which publication he, he actually originally wrote for the, all these essays about. Uh, so there's about four volumes now. Still looking, uh, it's the one that I'm reading, and it's just like the way he writes about things like Magritte. It's just brilliant. And it's just like he says, there was a guy who's going around the exhibition, and he, the man just turns to him at one point. He goes, "This man, this man, this is not just a philosopher. He's a man. He's seen the truth. This man was a good man." <laughs> <laughs> just like really loved the kind of reaction. The, my enjoyment of John Updike as a figure is ruined by the fact that there's a really funny bit in The Simpsons with him in it, <laughs> where he's like written a Krusty the Clown. He's ghost written Krusty the Clown's biography or something. Oh right. And home, and he's like loading them all in. To 
at the back of his car and he just looks really sad and harassed. And then Homer's like, oh, are you a writer then? What's your name? And he goes, John Updike. <laughs> and it's like really sad, laboured way. He's like, oh, I'll try and look out for you or something. <laughs> John Updike. Updike. They usually so get sad. the real people to do the yeah, real voice. Exactly. That's so, yeah, exactly. That's great. Stephen J. Gould is in an episode, which is, yeah, <laughs> it's just what a great introduction. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Thank Robert. you. And your book is actually out on officially September... Uh, 29th of August. 29th of August. How Not to Be a Boy, 29th of August, publication day. And that should be... Also the day me and my sister are going to Weymouth. Oh, that's nice. Hang on, I'm <laughs> going to Weymouth. No! It's going to Weymouth Day. <laughs> oh, oh. But I could get a copy in Weymouth. It's selling in Weymouth. It, it, it will be in all good bookshops. Yeah, and Weymouth is packed with them. <laughs> Thank you very much to all our supporters via Patreon and any other methods. And here are the particular people we're going to thank for today's episode. And they are Katie Lowe, John Sykes, Mark Clay, Aurora Wallace, Andrew Tate, Eleanor Steele, Nazneen Chatra and Mergelhein Harding-Smith. And the winner of the box of books this week is Alistair Simmons. Alistair, if you get in contact with us, drop an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com and we can organise to get your prize out to you. And remember, if you would like to be in the running to win a box of books each week, as well as getting bonus episodes and uh, extended editions of each episode every week, you can become a Patreon supporter of Book Shambles for as little as one dollar, one US dollar that is, per episode. And that uh, really helps us out and helps us be able to continue making the show. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. You'll find all the links there to Patreon as well as all the past episodes, reading lists, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.